All right, Jesse, last week's hypocrisy fest still has my blood boiling. What's the story this time? A troubled marriage leads to poison, arson, and ultimately murder. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about bad husbands, terrible wives, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show and win a place in my heart forever. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I am a thirsty bitch for some nice reviews, guys. I'm admitting it right up front. And I'm thirsty to send out those stickers. So Yes, you are. Andy has stickers to send you. So you guys, if you have reviewed us and you haven't gotten a sticker yet, please take a picture of it, DM us, or send it to lovers at lovemurder.love. Also, any story requests that you'd like to hear, especially if they have a book attached, would be great. Today's story comes from a listener named Heather S. And our source today is none other than the most amazing true crime writer of all time, Anne Rule, her book, Bitter Harvest. So get excited, guys. It's going to be a corker. Wasn't there a bitter recently? Didn't we have another bitter? Yes, Greg Olson had bitter almonds. That's right. That's right. I knew we had yes, something so this else. This is bitter was... harvest. And Andy just launched our discussion group. Do you want to yes. talk about that? Yeah. Quickly? So when you go on Facebook to search Love Murder Pod, you might also stumble across the Love Murder discussion group, which I just started late night on Friday. So we're still, you know, gathering the members, but you can join, you can become a moderator if you want. You can chat about little nuances with the episodes, post questions. I think you could post requests as well, right, Jesse? I mean, it's kind of just yes, for whatever. Andy, Andy's already posted her first Nicolas Cage meme. Yeah, it's for <laughs> Nicolas, Nicolas Cage memes. I posted my favorite quarantine one. But yeah, you can feel free to share whatever. You know, there's a few rules. They're all listed on there. Just mostly. It's mostly don't be a shitbag. Yeah. Don't be a shitbag. It's pretty easy. I'm sure there's yeah. plenty of other boards you can find if you want to be a shitbag. It's just not on ours. <laughs> yes. And thanks to Nancy for being our first moderator. We're really excited. We hope to garner some great conversations in there. And maybe you'll want to talk about this episode. So let's jump right in. Prairie Village, Kansas was an upscale suburb of Kansas City, and in the fall of 1995, on a street called Canterbury Court, nearly every showy home contained a doctor, lawyer, or CEO. 7517 Canterbury Court actually contained two, Dr. Deborah Green, Dr. Michael Farrar, and their three beautiful children. There they lived in a fantastic 5,000-square-foot mansion, the culmination of two lifetimes of hard work and a marriage's mutual dream. A dream that was, on the evening of October 23rd, completely on fire with its occupants still inside. What? Oh, yeah. The house is on fire and not everybody's out. 
Dr. Deborah Green barely escaped the flames that seemed to have engulfed the gigantic home almost immediately. Gasping, she pounded on a neighbor's door and called for help. Her babies, her babies were still in the house, she cried. As the neighbors woke out of a deep slumber and poured outside in pajamas and jackets to the horror of the bonfire, Deborah spotted a small figure climbing over the peak of the roof and onto the garage, which was getting licked with the flames. One of her children had escaped and was clinging to the edge of the roof. Help me, the child cried, choking on black flumes of smoke that flooded from every window in the house. Help me! Deborah, with the neighbors watching from their yards, went to the garage and beckoned for the child to jump. Terrified, she looked back at the garage roof that had also caught on fire. In moments, the entire thing would collapse. The child jumped with the flames hot on her back, and her mother attempted to catch her through open arms and failed. She dropped like a rock to the ground. Jessica. Which? Jessica. I know. I wish I could tell you that that had been a better rescue situation, but mom really dropped the ball there. So fortunately, the child was completely okay. Thank goodness. She was safe. But what about her brother and sister and their dogs? And what about her father? There were too many questions, too much smoke. The heat was overwhelming. Nearby, neighbors got their families and pets out of their homes, convinced that the Midwestern wind would bring the flames to their houses as well. Soon, the crackle and screams of the fire were matched by the squeal of sirens, and the child ran to the police and firemen, yelling for them to save her family. Her mother, Deborah, sat transfixed by the flames, stuck as though in shock. The fire department jumped into action and attempted a dangerous rescue mission. When all was said and done, despite the heroic efforts of the brave first responders, someone or someones would be dead, a family would be torn apart, and grave secrets exposed. A nation would be shocked at the lengths someone could go to for love or lack thereof. This is going to be an intense one, guys. I'm warning you right now. I appreciate the warning. It's like definitely a heavy case. Lots of twists and turns. A lot of people behaving badly as it happens on our show. So let's talk about the woman who will one day become Dr. Deborah Green. Deborah was born on February 28, 1951, the second daughter of Joanne and Bob Jones in Havana, Illinois. Bob drove a bakery truck and Joanne stayed home with the girls. Joanne had actually been a brilliant student who had secured a scholarship to college, but she had dropped out after only one semester. So she and Bob were high school sweethearts and Bob was actually one year younger than her. So when she went to college, she didn't really like fit in with the other girls. Like she was a scholarship student. She didn't have a lot of money. And I guess like a lot of the girls were very preppy. And she also was just really homesick for her family and for her boyfriend. So she actually dropped out and moved back. And her and Bob got married super young. He was still in high school and only 17. And she was 18 years old. Yeah. I mean, getting married in high school, even in the, you know, late 40s is pretty intense. Yeah. So she was so bright, though, that she kind of missed out. And and during that era, the late 40s, the 50s, just women kind of just stayed home. It was 
normal for them to stay home. So she never worked, unfortunately. So that really actually inspired her, though, to try to give her daughters the best education and really push them to go after their careers, which this wasn't very hard for Deborah because she was a total genius. In fact, Deb was so intelligent that she was kind of lazy at her schoolwork. You know those type of people, right? Like where everything comes so easy to them that they don't have to work at anything. Yeah, it was it was always kind of annoying to me because I actually had to work hard. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely kind of like school is easy and I never have to do anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> so we we represent both Each, factions. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, she was not like I'm not on her level though. She was like crazy intelligent. When Bob got a promotion in her teens, the family moved to Peoria, which is where Deborah attended high school. She was a good athlete and a cheerleader, as well as a gifted musician who played violin and piano. She was never like a super beauty, but she was always super duper popular due to her sarcastic wit and she had a great outgoing personality. As far as her looks, I think that the best comparison would probably be Ali Sheedy in The Breakfast Club. Yep. Do you remember what she looks like? Of course. And it's not like the character is all wrong because she was pretty... Like, she was, like, a cheerleader and, like, athletic. And and so she wasn't, like, that character. But the looks-wise is what she had going on. Yeah. Deborah graduated co-valedictorian from the class of 1969. And after achieving nearly perfect SATs, she entered the University of Illinois, after which she went on to medical school at the University of Kansas. At med school, she was considered likable and studious by her fellow students. She even befriended a handsome young man in her anatomy class named John Walker. The two bonded over their shared cadaver. Neither could have possibly... (laughs) Gross. Gross. I thought this was going like a totally different direction. Like I was like... You thought it was going to go romance? hot. Yeah. (laughs) No, no. They're dealing with dead people. Gross. Yeah. Yeah, so this is a little bit of a foreshadowing situation because neither one of them could have ever imagined that their lives would clash calamitously in the future. Okay. So put a pin in that one. (laughs) Well, in med school, she married her college sweetheart, an engineer named Dwayne Green. Well, the surname stuck, the marriage did not. Within only a couple of years, the couple had parted, getting officially divorced in the late 70s. Yikes. Yeah, it just sounds like it was like a mismatch from the beginning. She said that she was like bored with him pretty much right away. So Deborah started a resident program in emergency medicine. She had chosen it because she wanted excitement in her life. So she was dismayed to discover that people coming into the ER mostly had earaches or other common issues that they had let progress too long. It's not all Grey's Anatomy up in this piece, apparently. No, I mean, she definitely was doing that at the wrong time if she was in the ER now. <laughs> yeah, the ER She'd now would be plenty totally of excitement. different situation. <laughs> yeah. Too much excitement for anyone's own good. Yes. Nonetheless, she found excitement in other areas of her life. Deborah later called the scant time between husbands her hedonistic period. She had been someone on a serious path since practically birth, so she really let loose, traveling whenever she could to far-flung locales like Belize and buying herself a sporty silver Jaguar to spin about town in. Wow. Deb was, yeah, so she was having fun. I think she was making money at this point. She was a senior resident, and she was kind of just having a good time for the first time in her life. Like frisky Deb. Yeah, she was frisky. She was also like a hot doc on campus at this point, And she met a 23-year-old medical student named Michael Farrar. 
Mike was a Kansas boy born and bred who was four years younger than Deb and was extremely impressed by her. They did kind of make an odd physical match. Like he was skinny and gawky. He actually looked more like a teenager than a 23-year-old. And Deborah was a little bit more stocky and mature looking. But they were a perfect fit intellectually. Deb had a 165 AQ and Mike had also tested at genius level. He loved her sarcastic wit, her little sports car, and he was like kind of a feminist. He was like, I think it's pretty dope that she outranks me and she's so powerful, you know? Yeah, cool. Deb, for her part, appreciated Mike's ambition and believed he was going to make an excellent doctor. They got together while Deborah was finalizing her divorce and quickly decided to start a future together. Hmm. In retrospect, Mike would say that there were some warning signs that the union wasn't perfect. Deb was very volatile, willing to get into fights with strangers about small things like parking spots or she would like yell at an airline worker about a delayed flight. So not the best sign in somebody you're going to spend the rest of your life with. Yeah, but also not the best sign in someone you want to be your doctor. Yeah, to not have that sort of patience or empathy. Or calm. Like I feel like when you're in like a horrible emergency situation, the last thing you want is someone who's going to like pop off at any second. Exactly. You want stoicism. So yeah, Mike chalked it up to the fact that Deb was so smart that she had basically been able to accomplish everything she wanted to super easily. So when something didn't go her way or she was denied some sort of respect that she believed she was due, she was unaccustomed to it and flew off the handle. I mean, it's no excuse. No, but that was his theory. Mike also felt like for a new young couple, their relationship was lacking passion, but that was very easily excused by the fact that they were working insanely long and hard shifts at the hospital as med students and residents. Okay. So he's like, maybe they're not knocking boots as much as he would like, but he's like, of course they're exhausted. They're just working all the time, you know? Yeah. Both Deb and Mike ignored the red flags in favor of the perfect on-paper love story, and the two doctors were married on May 26, 1979. Ignoring all the red flags. Yeah, I mean, when you're selecting your partner for life, you really got to, like, hold out, even if it feels like it's taking a very long time, for the person that checks the boxes or checks at least, like, 9 out of 10 of the boxes, you know? Yeah. Life partners are just not somebody you want to super compromise on. Yeah, but she obviously has already had one quote-unquote life partner and is divorced already, so. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely you'll see throughout the story that Deb has some interpersonal problems. Yeah. So they got married on May 26, 1979, and immediately the marriage got off on the wrong foot when (sighs) Deborah turned down Mike for sex on their wedding night in favor of reading a novel. Can you imagine? I mean, I was, I was like literally trying to find like maybe she was tired. Maybe she didn't feel well. Maybe, but like you're like, nah, I'm good on the dick. I'm going to read this novel. What kind of novel was it most importantly? She actually liked true crime novels and thrillers and historical romance. Like she really liked like it was not a highbrow situation. It's stuff like I read. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't like book porn. No, it was not like she wasn't reading like erotica or anything. No. Erotica, that's the the correct name. Erotic, er, it was erotic can't because they did not do it that night. Poor Mike. Yeah. 
Over the next few months, the couple got into a pattern of Mike wanting more intimacy, both emotional and physical, from his busy and withdrawn wife and her rebuffing him. He would later say about the marriage, in Deborah's defense, I don't want to say that my marriage was always unhappy. We had a number of things in common besides medicine. We both liked to travel and we went on a number of very nice trips. I would never pretend that every moment of our marriage was horrible. The thing that was clearly lacking always was that affection, that caring, that intimacy that was so clearly what I longed for. Sad, Mike. <laughs> It's so sad. Oh, my God. <laughs> Mike channeled his passions into work and other matters of the heart, literally, as he chose cardiology as his specialization. Oh, my God. Stop. <laughs> oh. Over the next few years, a kind of star is born dynamic occurred. Well, Michael's star rose, Deborah's sunk or at least settled. Mike was obsessed with cardiology and received an illustrious fellowship while Deborah struggled with emergency medicine. She began finding it tedious and boring. She eventually switched to internal medicine, which set her path back about four years, and she ended up as a second-year resident once more alongside her younger husband. Yikes. Around this time, Mike began finding various prescriptions for pain or sleeping meds prescribed to Deb's patients in their house. Uh, uh-huh. And she was frequently out of it when he came home. So she was definitely taking these drugs. She claimed she had inadvertently brought home the prescriptions, like that she put them in her lab coat or whatever and then forgot to give them to the patient or something. Okay. But Mike suspected otherwise. However, any burgeoning substance abuse came to a halt when Deborah discovered she was pregnant with the couple's first child. A son named Timothy Farrar was born on January 20th, 1982 to two very ecstatic parents. Deborah was an excellent mother to the newborn baby and cherished the six-week-long maternity leave she took before starting a fellowship in her new specialty of oncology and hematology at University of Cincinnati. Both Deborah and Mike wanted to have another child close in age to Tim, and they succeeded. Little girl Lissa was born two days after Christmas in 1984, and once again, the family was overjoyed. Again, both Deborah and Mike went back to work almost immediately. At this point, they were studying for the board exams in their specialties. Michael passed his cardiology boards the very first time, but Deborah failed her oncology boards twice. So Mike said that he believed it was because Deb literally never studied and she had gotten away almost her entire life without studying. Yep. You got to study for this shit, babe. It's your medical boards. And yeah. And you're like, you like are going to do oncology. Like, you, don't you want to like know everything <laughs> to help these yeah, people? Yeah, you should. And so she just gave up after failing it twice. And I guess you're still allowed to practice. You just don't. Like if a patient inquires, you're just not a board certified doctor. So she was still able to practice, but in general, kind of like what you're saying, Andy, like she didn't go to seminars to learn, you know, about the latest technology or scientific advances. She didn't like attend conferences. She did not like mingle in the oncology community and learn from other doctors. Like she had absolutely no desire to better herself as a doctor. And Mike said she kept short hours, and then she would just come home and read. And she just did not seem to care about being a better oncologist. 
So though she was now practicing in Kansas City, where Mike had also gotten a job, she didn't seem to enjoy it, and she was ill-suited temperament-wise. Like you also said, obviously, you need to be incredibly patient and empathetic if you are dealing with deadly and chronic illnesses like cancer, and Deborah just didn't seem to be able to muster it up. In 1988, she found herself surprise pregnant again with their last child, a little girl they named Kelly, who was born on December 13th. And within a year of Kelly's birth, Deborah decided that she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom for good and leave medicine behind. I think that was probably, yeah, a good idea for her. I think so too. I don't think we should have, you know, doctors or medical personnel who don't really want to be there, don't want to, you know, study or, (laughs) yeah. Could you imagine if like, I mean, my, our most recent health thing was obviously like having the babies and like, I could not imagine going every month, every two weeks and every week for 10 months and going and seeing someone who just like didn't know all of the new things and didn't, wasn't excited about like this really potentially scary thing that we were about to do. (laughs) Exactly. That would be terrible. You know, so I, I think this was good. Like, imagine if you're like ill or if a loved one is ill. It's well, just especially it's if you're dealing with cancer, you want somebody yeah. who's on top of the latest yeah. trends and techniques and technology, you know, medications. And yeah. 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 No, so I think no this thanks. was a good call for Deborah. But on the other hand, too, she's a very intelligent woman with a lot of like raw computing power. And I think this is also like a, you know, what's that that phrase about like idle hands or the devil's work? I think that's Kind of like it, right? idle brain. Yeah, that's it. Idle brain is the devil's work for Deb because it was good for her, but it also wasn't. Though the marriage lacked passion, Deb and Mike were committed parental partners and the family did enjoy traveling together, like Mike said. The family had a condo in Sanibel Island, Florida, and also enjoyed trips to Alaska, British Columbia, Puerto Vallarta. Cabo San Lucas, Disneyland, and Breckenridge, Colorado. It's a fun assortment of locations to go. They went all over the place, and it seemed like the family really had a good time. But the trips were simply distractions and small bright spots in an unhappy marriage that was growing worse with every passing year. As time passed, Deborah grew even less interested in intimacy or fostering any sort of sexual relationship with her husband. Though she had never been much interested in fashion, now she cut her hair in a utilitarian short style and wore oversized baggy t-shirts every day. She had kind of like given up. She also began to worry that Mike was cheating on her. She became aggressive and paranoid and picked fights with him in front of the children. Life at home became so unpleasant that Mike put all of his energy into his cardiology practice and rarely came home. So he would leave at 6 in the morning and not come home until 8 or 9 p.m. Yeah, I mean, I don't blame him, you know. I don't blame him either, but that's a really shitty thing to do when you have kids because obviously those kids aren't spending any time with their dad. Yeah. When you have little kids, your kids are already in bed by 8 or 9 p.m., you know? I know. When Dan comes home at like 7.15, she's already in bed and he's like sad about it. Exactly. So he's avoiding his wife, which I totally get because she is not fun to be around. But his children are suffering from this, you know? Deborah began to use these absences to turn the children against their father, especially young preteen Tim, who was already prone to butting heads with Mike. So when Deborah was angry with Mike, which was pretty much all of the time, she would complain to Tim about it like he was an adult. 
which is so damaging. Yeah, that's really bad. Lissa, who was only about nine at this point, began to also side with her mother and brother against her admittedly absent father. The animosity grew to the point that Mike and Tim actually had a physical altercation in which Tim, who was already almost as tall as Mike and much more athletic and brawny, broke his father's nose. Whoa. Yeah, it was not a good time in this household. By the time the couple's 12th anniversary was approaching, the marriage was basically a zombie. It was dead but still ambling on. Yeah. Mike hated to fail, but the living situation was untenable. Not only did Deborah seem to hate him and was turning the children against him, the house was constantly a mess and the kids had absolutely no boundaries or rules whatsoever. In early 1994, he decided to ask Deborah for a divorce. And she went crazy. She went to the family room where Tim had been watching TV and screamed that his father had cheated and was trying to cheat them out of the house they lived in. Deborah began throwing things and crying that Mike was going to make them live in a cramped one-bedroom apartment while he moved into a fancier house or moved into their house with his new family. Oh, God. So this was all absolutely untrue and awful. He wasn't cheating on her. He didn't have a new family at all. And even if he had been, this is not the way you break the news of a separation to your children. No, it's just sad that he wasn't and she's doing this, you know, because it's, yeah. She was completely unhinged. So Mike moved into a bachelor apartment And shockingly, with distance, the relationship began to heal. Mike began to take the kids two to three times a week and spend time actually co-parenting with Deb. And he began to see a different side of her. Through long talks about what went wrong in their marriage, Deb maintained that the current house that they were living in was too cramped for the family of five and their dog. They had a black lab named Boomer. She said that if they moved into a larger home, she would be able to keep on top of the house's cleanliness. Mike was actually interested in this idea as he really wanted to try to keep the family together. And the couple quickly found a 5,000 square foot mansion on Canterbury Court that boasted six bedrooms, a den, a home gym, and a big pool in the backyard. Love a pool. Love a pool. This was a dream house for real. And Rule said in the book that I think it was like $600,000, but they got it for $400,000. And in California, it would have been like a $3 million house. Why'd they get it for $400,000? Did someone pass away in it? I guess it had been empty for a long time. It's haunted, probably. (laughs) No, I think it was relatively new construction. (laughs) I think it's probably haunted. You don't just get $200,000 off for no reason. Well, it was definitely cursed because this uh, not nice things happen at this house. So Mike and Deb made an offer, and it was accepted, but almost immediately, Mike had cold feet. Though Deb had made promises over the four months that they were apart, deep down in his gut, he did not think she had changed, nor that anything would be different. Once he signed the papers, he'd be signing on to a lifetime of more issues and unhappiness. He backed out, citing financial concerns and Everyone, Deb, their kids, and their realtor were all real upset. So two or three days after Mike broke the bad news and broke the deal, he was paged at the hospital and told that his house, the house that Deb had stayed in with the kids, was on fire. Oh, God. 
In a panic, he drove over 90 miles per hour to find the entire fire department at their house, which was oozing smoke into the sky, though he could see no flames. Thankfully, all of the kids and Boomer were at Tim's soccer game, and they were all safe. Interesting that she decided to bring the dog to the soccer game that day. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, there was massive damage to the home. It seemed that the fire had started in the basement, shot up the laundry chute, and engulfed the whole house. The insurance company determined that the cause was accidental, and it was a rare electrical issue. The cord of a practically new dehumidifier had been wrapped so tight around a copper pipe that it had shorted in three different areas. The copper pipe had gotten so hot that it had heated the adjacent wood paneling to burning point. So the insurance company paid out like a huge amount. Apparently, the Farrar Greens actually like really made out on this. They paid out $48,000, which is more like $88,000 in possessions alone. Wow. Just like their furniture and stuff. Wow. The tragedy and near loss of his family, plus the fact that they all had to briefly move into his cramped bachelor apartment, made Mike reconsider the house on Canterbury Court. Within days of the fire, Deborah and Mike decided to make a go of it once more and made another accepted offer on the new home. Sounds like exactly what she wanted to happen happened. Yep. Mike and Deborah both made an effort at first. Mike cut back on his hours to spend more time with the family. They all took a trip to Disney. Deborah tried harder around the house for a little while, but the honeymoon phase lasted only six months, and then Deb and Mike were back at each other's throats again. The house was constantly a mess, and despite the reconciliation, the two hadn't been having sex. Mike didn't want to live out the rest of his life without passion. Later, he said... I made the mistake that so many people make. Either they have a baby or they buy a house and they think that everything is going to change, that all the bad times will be left behind, but they never are. Once again, Mike had to evaluate his marriage, his life. It became clear to me that our relationship had not substantially improved. I still did not have any love for Deborah, and I decided that I wanted a divorce. Yeah, I mean, he, we say that all the time. All the time, let's add it to the list. Buying a house. Things that will not save your marriage on Love Murder. Threesomes? Having a threesome. Baby. <laughs> Having a baby. Buying a house. Buying a house or the last one, murdering together. Oh, God, never. Never. I mean, that's We've had not couple... good for like anything ever. No. <laughs> Murder is never the answer, guys. Never the answer. All right. Yes. Yeah. So he realized that this was not going to work out. The problem was that when the whole family had moved into Canterbury Court, Mike had promised the children that he would never leave them or their mother. Uh, and now it's only six months later and it was a promise he was going to have to break. Early in 1995, Mike knew he wanted out, but the family had already put down a down payment on a school trip for Tim to go to Machu Picchu in Peru. And both Deborah and Mike had signed on to go as well. Mike didn't want the trip to be strained, so he decided to put off asking for a divorce yet again until after the summer trip, effectively waiting an additional six months. He also thought that if he and Deborah could get along, that potentially this could be a very happy memory and maybe like a last family hurrah, especially for Tim. 
While preparing for the Peru trip, Deb and Mike met another couple planning on taking their teen son as well, and it turned out to be an old acquaintance of Deborah's. Dr. John Walker, who had once been Deborah's cadaver partner, was now an anesthesiologist and married to a beautiful blonde nurse named Celeste. Okay, how? Because they're not even in the same place as they were, right? Is this just complete coincidence? No, she went to University of Kansas for medical school, and so did he. And then they moved to Cincinnati for a little while, but then they moved back to Kansas. Got it. Okay, okay, okay. Yep. So this is pretty wild. Also, these are pseudonyms. So John and Celeste is not their real name. There's a couple other names in this that are not their real names. And it seems to me like they decided to participate with Anne Rule's book under the agreement that she would use pseudonyms for them. Okay. And I feel like if they felt like that, then I should do that as well. Because after all, W-W-A-R-D, what would Anne Rule do? I think oh is what God. we should do. So yeah, so Celeste and John had two sons, ages 14 and 10. Celeste would be taking the 14-year-old while John stayed home with their 10-year-old. Celeste and John had met cute in a surgical recovery room when they were both checking on a patient. That is super cute. Celeste was immediately impressed with a handsome doctor with a gentle manner, and John was taken with Celeste's good looks and vivacious personality. They were married on October 6, 1979, only four and a half months after Deborah and Michael had been married. John was 29 and Celeste was 27. Similar to the Farrar Greens, the couple eventually did find themselves unhappy in a marriage with poor communication. Though they stayed together for the kids, they were both desperately miserable. John had clinical depression and enjoyed few activities outside of work, while Celeste was social and engaged. Their shared interests, other than their sons, fell away, and by the time the trip had come around, the two were operating like roommates. Though they attempted to go to counseling, John maintained that he would leave when both boys went to college so he didn't see a point in repairing the relationship. He's like, let's just run this one out. What do you do, though? Like, can Celeste go out and mingle if that's what she enjoys doing? Like, she would go out and socialize with, like, other couples and people and just leave him home. Okay. Yeah, so they both decided that the trip to Peru away from each other would help shed light on the direction that their marriage should take. Like she yeah. was like, I want to use this time away. You know, Machu Picchu is so spiritual. Yeah. Really dig into what I want because she was kind of thinking, maybe we shouldn't wait until they're, you know, in college. They're so Silly. young. They're 10 and 14. Like, Silly. is she going to wait eight full years before having any shred of happiness in her life? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. So it'll come as no surprise, I'm sure, given that this is love murder, that Celeste and Mike immediately hit it off while on the trip. Celeste and Mike did? Mike. Mike Farrar, Deb's husband. Oh, my God. You didn't see that one coming? No. I was expecting Deb and John to get back together. (laughs) No. This is the Celeste and Mike show. If you think about it, though, it does make sense because – They're kind of the less depressed partners. They're the ones who want more passion. They're the ones who want more love and intimacy and excitement, you know? No, it totally makes sense. I just did not see that coming. So yeah, so Celeste and Mike totally hit it off on this trip. Also, Deb had a bad knee, apparently. And Celeste is very physically active. And so was Mike. I guess he was like a triathlete. Okay. And so... Well, Deb would, like, stay back or, like, go, you know, sightseeing or go shopping. 
Celeste and Mike went on like several hikes together in Peru. They took the boys with them, but it was very bonding for them. Plus, I think it's kind of like sexy to do something like physical with somebody, you know, especially if the other one's like a little fit. Yeah, exactly. Like you're sweating, you're working your way up a mountain. If somebody's in front, you're looking at their butt, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Butt shot. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) So yeah, and of course the teenage boys were like running ahead. So they had lots of time to talk to each other through this. So Celeste would later say about Mike, I was drawn to him. He had energy and enthusiasm. He just had a spark about him. She liked that he was take charge, organized, and involved in his kids' lives in a way that she felt her husband wasn't. Well, on the trip, the two often found themselves alone, like I said. And upon return to the United States, Deborah offered to drive to St. Louis to pick up the girls who had been staying with family there. And Mike said he would unpack and do the laundry. But laundry wasn't the only thing he was doing. On (laughs) July 8th, 1995, shortly after their return, Mike went over to Celeste under the guise of delivering something she had stashed in his suitcase. Yeah, so they started a hot and heavy affair, which, I mean, I don't know if either party regretted it later, but I can imagine that it was very, very physical given that they both had been kind of sex-starved in their marriage for years and years, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how old were they at this time? They're both in their 40s. I think early 40s. Okay. So, yeah. Not much older than us. Like, like maybe five years older than us. Yeah. Yeah. So, the two kept the affair as discreet as possible, but the Peru group had grown close and often socialized that summer. So, Deborah began to suspect something was going on between her husband and the pretty nurse. Also, I feel like you can always tell when people are banging. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So they're all like hanging out. Like are like drawn to each. I mean, I guess if you're like in tune with that, though, I'm sure there's some people who are oblivious to it. But yeah. Well, she was already paranoid. Yeah. About him cheating. So I'm sure she was very in tune to this, you know? Oh. Yeah. So within weeks of the affair beginning, Mike finally asked Deborah for a divorce officially. And predictably, it did not go well. (laughs) Would she light the house on fire? Maybe that's where we're going with this. I don't know. Once again, Deborah screamed. She began hitting herself in front of the children and again told the children that their father had cheated and was leaving them and was going to move his mistress into the house. Tim and Lissa believed their mother 100% and were irate with their father, who had broken not only a marital promise to Deborah, but a serious promise to them as well. He said later on that his biggest regret about the whole situation was that when they moved into the house in Canterbury Court, he should have never said, I'll never move out. I'll never break up with your mom. No, I'll you never can't. leave you guys. You can't. You know? Yeah, you can't say that. Especially with how tumultuous the relationship already was. Absolutely. And while it seemed like Deb didn't even like Mike any longer, she liked the status of being two married doctors, even if she wasn't practicing. She liked not working and she was afraid that she would lose the big house and, you know, the social standing and the nice lifestyle. So weird because it didn't seem like it was about Mike. Like it did not seem like she loved him still. It definitely seemed like A, maybe a lifestyle thing, but B, like a control thing. Yeah, obviously. Like, Yeah, it's like, I don't want him, but I don't want anyone else to have him, and I don't want him to have a good life. 
The children begged Mike not to move out. So he remained in the master bedroom while Deborah moved to the guest bedroom on the lower floor. Oof. Not a good situation. Uh Uh-uh. How are you going to sneak Celeste up those stairs, Mike? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he's not. But another sad reason that Mike stayed in the home was because Deborah began to drink heavily. So she would manage to carpool the kids safely during the day, but like basically after getting them home from school, she would lock herself in her room and just start binge drinking. Yikes. Until she passed out. It got so bad that at one point, Lissa called her father at 4.30 in the afternoon on a Friday, begging for help. When Mike raced home from the hospital, he found Deborah nude and passed out on her bedroom floor with an almost empty one and a half liter of gin bottle beside her. Whoa. Okay. I thought you were going to stay on the lawn. So in her room was much better than what I was imagining. But that is much better. Yeah. I mean, still not great, though, for your kids looking for you at 4.30 uh, p.m. No, it's scary. And I doubt she picked them up safely that day. No. There's definitely reports that other parents and teachers were smelling alcohol on her breath when she was picking the kids up. There have absolutely been days when I've been hungover. And I doubt I've ever drank as much as she's drinking. And I can definitely smell booze on my own breath for like 48 hours. And I brush my teeth like eight times. Yeah. And I think especially gin is going to be a strong smell. I guess she was fond of gin and vodka, which are like two serious things. And she was drinking them straight. Yeah. No. Not not a good situation here. You're definitely going to smell like it. You're definitely going to smell like it. Mike scooped up Lissa and Kelly and dropped them off at his sister's house. When he returned... So this situation is so crazy. I'm just going to try to like tell you guys it because it's like I was trying to write it and I'm like, I don't even know what to say about this. It's so bizarre. So basically, she's passed out on the ground. His first priority, of course, is getting his kids safely out of the home and then figuring out what to do with his wife. Yeah. So he gets the girls to his family's home and they're going to spend the night there. And then he comes home to try to deal with her and figure out whether she needs to go to a doctor or the hospital or something. And she's gone. Like, she's gone. Her car's there, but she's nowhere to be seen in the house. So he's like, uh, this is freaking weird. So he literally searches the entire home, and she is not there. So around 11 o'clock that night, he gets a phone call from her. And he's like, where the hell are you? Are you okay? And she didn't sound that drunk anymore. And she's like, I'm fine. I'm with friends. I like, don't love you. I don't, I hate you. Blah, blah, blah. They start like fighting, right? And he's like, just get yourself home. And she's like, I don't care. I'm safe. I don't need you. You know, so she hangs up. So he assumes obviously she's somewhere out, but he doesn't know where she is because she doesn't have any friends. So he's like, I have no idea where she is. But at this point, he's like, I can't care. You know, I cannot like try to care. Well, you know, he's going through this. He obviously talks to Celeste several times throughout the night being like, oh my God, listen to what my crazy soon-to-be ex-wife is doing and what's going on, you know? So the next morning, he's going bird watching with Celeste at five in the morning. And I guess some other people from the Peru group, they love bird watching at five in the wow. morning. Wow. Sounds like my worst nightmare. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But hey, it looks like Celeste and Mike are match, man. They have the same interests. So an energy he, to wake up and, at five in the morning to go look at birds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's 
not the pecker I'd want to look at. <laughs> so, so yeah. So anyways, they go bird watching, and when he comes back at nine in the morning, Deb is just sitting there, like she, like a creeper. Yes, and he comes to find out that she never left the house oh, at all. My God. So in the basement level where there's like a guest room, they had two phone lines. They had one for the kids. Like, you know, back in the day with landlines, yep. like sometimes like yep. if, if you were like really cool and popular, you had your own phone line. Yeah. So your parents couldn't like pick up and listen to you. Yeah. I mean, my I parents knew what that number was, but. Yeah. Did you have your own phone line? We had two. So, okay. So that's the same situation. We did yeah. not. I did not have my own phone line, which is super annoying. My parents picked up the phone all the time while I was on the phone. Really? And yeah. Like and it was a back- privacy thing too. I feel like you shouldn't do that. Oh, my parents were the worst. Also, my dad would decide like he would. <laughs> okay. First of all, my dad made me answer the phone <laughs> literally my entire life while I was living in this home. Pray residence, Jesse speaking. <laughs> that is how my brother and I had to answer the phone. Your From brother had to we, say Jesse speaking? That's weird. Well, he had to say John. Um, yeah, so I had to f- answer the phone like that, which was so embarrassing as a teenager. And second, when I got to be a freshman in high school, he barred me from answering the phone at all. And when a boy would call me, he would grill the boy as to how old the boy was and what year he was born in. And if he was more than two years older than me, he'd be like, then what the fuck are you doing calling my 14-year-old daughter? And then hang up on them. It oh, I love so, you, Dad. Oh, my God. Well, he, you know, he kept me a virgin until college. So I guess there's some <laughs> props to Woody over here. <laughs> I was so mad. I was like one of the only freshmen invited to senior prom and I couldn't go. <laughs> oh, my God. You couldn't go? No, because clearly that boy was four years older than me. There was no way my dad was going to let me go. <laughs> I mean, that is a little creepy, I guess, if he's 18 and you're 14. Yeah, it's totally creepy. My dad was right. (laughs) But of course, I was crestfallen. (laughs) Okay, so back to the story, guys. So yeah, so she was home the entire time, and she was in their basement, which had the two phone lines, the kids' phone line and their main house number. And she was hiding under the guest room bed. So when he came to look for her, she was literally under the bed. Only a crazy drunk lady would do that. Oh, absolutely. And then she like pretended she was gone by calling the house line from the kids line just to see what he would do and who he'd call. And then she picked up the phone and listened to him talking to Celeste. Oh my God, that's so creepy. So creepy. So only a week later, Mike returned home to a chicken salad sandwich that Deborah had left out for him for dinner. So he ate the chicken salad sandwich, but he noticed that it had kind of a bitter taste. So he asked Deborah, he's like, this tastes kind of weird, doesn't it? And she's like, no, we were all fine. So he was really hungry. I guess it'd been a long day at work. So he kept eating it and he ate the whole thing. Okay, why? Why are you eating anything from your crazy wife? Have we not learned anything? I don't think he listened to Love Murder at this point. I'm just saying, throughout we history. Were, you know, four. <laughs> <laughs> Within hours of eating this chicken salad sandwich, he was experiencing abdominal pain, vomiting, and diarrhea. For the next three or four days, the symptoms continued. Finally, on the Thursday afterwards, so this had happened on a Friday, the Thursday afterwards, he finally regained his strength, but only hours after dinner, 
the torrential vomiting started once again. It was so bad that he required hospitalization at this point, and he also had a fever of 104.4. God. Yep, his blood pressure also dropped dangerously low. A central line was inserted in his subclavian vein under the collarbone, so large quantities of antibiotics and fluids could be fed into his body. The doctors were puzzled by his violent and sudden illness, and they thought maybe it was something called tropical sprue related to his Peru trip where he had swam in the Amazon River and he had eaten some of the local foods. The weird thing was, though, that they had been home, though, for almost a month. So the doctors are like, these symptoms would fit tropical sprue, which you can catch, you know, on the Amazon River. But why would it hit so late? That didn't make sense. Eventually, Mike recovered enough to return home, though he was significantly weakened. However, only hours after enjoying a nice spaghetti dinner with his family, he was rushed back to the hospital. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know for us, having new babies, full-time jobs, a podcast, and just the general state of the world right now can cause major anxiety. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. And the service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. So you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room like with traditional therapy ever again. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com slash lovemurder. That's better, H-E-L-P, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. Special offer for Love Murder listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash LoveMurder. The attacks had occurred on a Friday, the following Thursday, and then another Friday, seemingly once a week for three weeks. By Labor Day, Mike was released from the hospital, practically skin and bones. At 5'10", he was down to nearly 125 pounds. Yeah, so he was too tired and ill to argue with Deborah. And besides, she was being super sweet. Like, she was even preparing him his favorite meals. He particularly enjoyed eating that meal while watching the Kansas City Chiefs in his recliner. So here's a shocker. I know this is going to come as a surprise to you, Andy. But hours later, he was back in the hospital. Oh, I well, love the doctors was... are just like, we can't figure this out. <laughs> exactly. Well, they couldn't. Nobody. I have to tell you, on this show, it's so obvious. But in real life, poisonings are very rare. Like They do not happen all of the time like they do on our podcast. So while he was stuck in the hospital, a couple things happened. Number one, Tim and Lissa had to call him regarding Deborah's out-of-control drinking. And Tim, who was 13 at this point, 
was forced to go around the house and hide all of Deborah's booze. Which is yeah. super sad. A kid should not have to assume that responsibility about their parent at this point, you know? And number two, Celeste finally asked John for a divorce. Mike's severe and unexplained illness had made her realize that if they wanted to be together, they had to move forward with ending their respective marriages. John was saddened, but not surprised. He seemed to be handling it as well as possible. He rented a house nearby and consulted a divorce attorney. However, within only a week of the decision, tragedy struck. Though John had mostly moved into his new home, he didn't own any pots or pans, so he would still go to the family home after work or dinner. And I think this was also meant to help the boys transition to still have like a family dinner, even if dad wasn't living at home, you know? Yeah, yeah. When 6.30 p.m. came and went without John coming home, Celeste called the hospital and found out that John had left work actually hours earlier. She didn't know where he was. Okay. Celeste called a friend who lived next door to John's new home, and the two decided to see if he was there. Upon arrival, Celeste was horrified to discover that her husband of nearly two decades was dead in his car in his new garage. John's body was still warm, so Celeste performed CPR until emergency services could take John to the hospital. When John arrived in the emergency room, the doctor found that he had been dead for hours. The outside temperature was 105 degrees, so it had just kept his body warm. When John was found, he had IV tubing in his arm attached to two vials. Since he was a skilled anesthesiologist, they believe that he may have killed himself with perhaps fentanyl, a powerful painkiller that when injected too fast can depress breathing and become fatal. He was sent to an autopsy to determine exactly what was his cause of death, but it was believed to be a suicide. From Bitter Harvest, one of Celeste Walker's relatives would insist that she heard John talking on the phone to Deborah a day or two before Celeste found him dead in the garage of his rented house. Oh, God. If Deborah had, in fact, told him of the affair between her husband and his wife, it would have been a powerful incentive for him to check out of his bleak life particularly after Celeste chose that day or the next to ask him for a divorce. Deborah would deny that any such conversation took place. Celeste believed that it did, that Deborah was so jealous that she would have done anything to get back at her and Mike. Anyone who knew John at all would have known how fragile he was. Deborah had known him since medical school. To tell him about the affair bluntly and in the vulgar term she used to tell her own children would have been an unbelievably cruel thing to do. Yeah. And, of course, would have potentially pushed him into this suicide if it is, in fact, a suicide. Alternately, rumors abounded that Celeste may have had something to do with John's death or at least drove him to suicide. People thought that she was a bit too merry at his funeral. There were, of course, rumors of an affair, and she was allegedly in line to receive a sizable life insurance payout. Nonetheless, the cops thoroughly investigated Celeste, and she was cleared. Mike was above suspicion as he was still in the hospital when John died, and no one looked into Deborah's whereabouts. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, when you consider the fact that everyone involved in this love triangle or square, square. whatever it is, are, are all medical professionals? Yeah. You know, you kind of have to ask some questions. And one of them's a loose cannon? Yep. 
when Mike was released, he was using an intravenous feeding tube because his doctors were concerned about certain types of food triggering his episodes. Yeah, like meat. Like anything that Deb could feed him. They actually thought it was gluten. They thought he had some, like, he had developed some crazy celiac type thing. So, because the spaghetti was like one of the most recent things. He began to grow stronger. And for the first time since his sickness began nearly six weeks earlier, he told Deborah that he still intended to get a divorce because basically they hadn't talked about it in a while because okay. he was just so focused on healing. And as he's feeling a little better, he's like, you know, this changes nothing. We're still getting a divorce. Deb responded by drinking too much night after night and saying disturbing things to Mike, like that she was going to commit suicide or that she wanted to kill him. Oh. Mike believed at the time that it was simply her usual histrionic behavior dialed up due to the booze. However, he wanted to make sure just in case that she didn't have some way to kill herself, like medication that she could OD on. While the kids were in school, he went through her purse and found some very interesting things indeed. Inside were a dozen seed packets for castor beans, as well as three empty vials of potassium chloride. Uh, Yeah, so potassium chloride is usually given to people suffering from heat stroke or acute vomiting in order to reestablish electrolyte balance, which of course is a good thing. However, if too much is taken, it can put the heart in a fatal arrhythmia. He was confused about this because though Deborah had administered vitamins into his intravenous feeding tube, he hadn't gotten sick and he hadn't died. So he's like, they're empty. I don't know what she did with them. It is possible that she fed them into his intravenous feeding tube and he, he, he just didn't suffer any adverse effects, you know? Yeah. There was also a note that both chilled and annoyed Mike. So he had already become privy to the fact that some anonymous person had written a letter to the headmaster of their children's school alleging that he had an inappropriate relationship with Celeste and that he was hurting his wife who was somehow a paragon of virtue. And it had been typed. Now he found a handwritten version of that same note in Deb's handwriting in her purse. LOL! Uh-huh. <laughs> you gotta throw out your rough draft, honey. Yeah, he also found, speaking of receipts, a receipt for the castor bean seeds for August 7th, 1995, the same exact day as his first health scare. Oh my God. So he packed up the seeds, the receipt, the empty vials, and the letter, and he hid them deep in his closet. A few days later, he confronted Deb about the seeds. At first, she tried to say that she was going to plant them, and then she admitted that she had purchased them to kill herself. Oh. Now, at this point, he didn't know that it was possible that castor beans could make you die, you know? He didn't have, like, access to a Google machine, I think, apparently in 1995. So he didn't know that this was going to kill him. So she kind of gave it away when she was like, I was going to use them to kill myself. Yeah, come on, babe. Apparently, if ground down, castor bean seeds are extremely lethal. So Mike was alarmed, obviously, and became even more so as the day progressed and Deborah got completely wasted and had what seemed like a psychiatric breakdown. He called a mental health clinic and eventually got Deborah committed. The doctor that admitted her actually recognized her as a former colleague. And she actually put on a good show because this doctor, Dr. McCoy, 
kind of actually believed that she wasn't drunk. And she heard through Deborah that they were going through a contentious divorce and that Deborah basically said, my husband's trying to get me committed so that he can use this against me in the divorce and get custody of our kids. And it's all a trick. And Dr. McCoy had known her at a previous hospital where they had worked together. And she was like, oh shit, that's really bad. Like maybe this is true. And so she was actually inclined to believe Deborah. But then when Mike walked in through the doors and Deborah saw Mike, she apparently went insane. She began to scream and spit at him. She was swearing at him. She called Mike a fuckhole. And she tried to attack him. And while she was being pulled off of him by security, Dr. McCoy heard her say, you are going to get these kids over our dead bodies. Uh, okay, cray-cray. Yeah, so Dr. McCoy, of course, was like, whoa, okay, I was inclined to let her go. This is a totally different kettle of fish. So she put her in a, like, kind of like a cubicle area to wait and hold, and then she talked to Mike, and then she actually called Tim and was like, hey, you know, this is very he said, she said between your parents. Can you tell me what's going on? And Tim was like, I love my mom, And this is definitely like my dad's fault, but my mom has been really, really wasted lately, like almost every single day. Oh, thank God. Yeah. So he's like, I mean, he was still very loyal to his mother. He was like, it's because my dad's an asshole that my mom's drinking like this, but she is drinking like this. Unstable. Yeah. She's unstable. So at that point, Dr. McCoy was like, okay, we're definitely going to commit Deborah. But then when she got back out to the cubicle, Deborah was gone. Stop it. Mm -hmm. She had just disappeared into the night. No one had been watching her. So the police were obviously alerted and she was eventually found wandering the streets and brought back to the hospital where she at this point voluntarily committed herself. So Mike was like, all right, enough is enough. And since the police were already involved because they had to bring her back to the hospital, he said, I would like to give a statement now and I have to give you guys this evidence. So he gave them a statement about everything that had been going on, his sickness, about how he found these seeds, about the letter, everything. And he turned over everything he found in her purse over to the police at this point. So while Deborah is away in the mental hospital, Mike did bond with his children and they apparently had a very nice, like quiet, relaxing few days. Although it was just, you know, still sad because... The kids knew what was going on with their mother, you know? Back at the clinic, Deborah was diagnosed with major bipolar depression with suicidal impulses and started on Prozac, which is, of course, an antidepressant, as well as something called Transine and Clonopin, which were both prescribed to manage her anxiety. Deborah promised that she would not drink on her meds as each medication's effect was heightened in collaboration with alcohol. When Deborah signed herself out, Mike made the decision to leave for good. He realized at this point it wasn't safe for him to be under the same no. roof as his wife. But also, like, you're going to leave the kids, too? He left the kids. He left the kids. He really, 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 really believed that she loved her kids more than anything in the world. And yeah. he didn't think that she would ever hurt them. Yeah. He had gone to the library, which is what we used to call Google. And he had found out that freed from its protective hard casing, the inside of the castor bean could be ground into a poisonous substance called ricin. The effects on the body are devastating. They make those of the tropical sprue, which is what they thought he had had, 
vomiting, stomach pain, diarrhea, dizziness, impaired vision, and possible rapid heartbeat. So you'll basically like shit or vomit yourself to death on this, and there is no antidote. The only treatment is aimed at the symptoms, like they can rehydrate you, you know? Yeah. But you can't fix it. So he brought the books that he had found about the ricin poisoning to his doctors, who all agreed that it was potentially possible that he had been poisoned at this point. And they agreed to test his blood to detect the presence of antibodies to ricin in his bloodstream, which is the only way to prove that he had been poisoned at this point. So yeah, needless to say, he's like, I'm out of here. And finally, both Deborah and Mike get divorce attorneys and begin divorce proceedings. Away from Deborah and officially separated, Mike not only began to feel well enough to return to work, he began to become more open about his relationship with Celeste, which naturally enraged Deborah. She told the children that Mike had slept with at least three women from the Peru trip and that, quote, Celeste was leading your father around by the dick. Oh, my God. Yeah, let's remember that these kids are around the ages of 6, 10, and 13 at this point. Yeah. Wildly inappropriate behavior. Deborah was definitely spinning out, and the neighbors and parents at her children's school were starting to notice. Another doctor couple, Dr. Mary and John Foreman, lived next door, and they discovered the same disturbing anonymous letter on a leaf pile in their yard. Again, it was the same thing that was addressed to the headmaster of Pembroke School and accused Mike and Celeste of moral indiscretion and praised Deborah. Mary Foreman was like, Something's really weird here. So she alerted Mike and he told her it was simply Deb leaving it for them to find as well to try to like poison the neighbors against him, you know? Okay. And he also even told her about finding the same handwritten version in Deb's purse. Mary was also worried, she confided in Mike, that in his absence, Deborah and the household were deteriorating. People commented on the smell of alcohol on her breath, and another neighbor had noted that they had once seen six-year-old Kelly crying and banging on the door after 10 o'clock one night. Outside? Yeah, like apparently she was locked out of the house while her mother was on a drinking binge. God. Mike, who was still recovering from his illnesses, could only offer the children a safe haven whenever they needed it and promised to fight for 50-50 custody. But the kids actually rejected it. They didn't want to go with their father. They felt protective of their mother. They felt like their, their dad was the bad guy. So they didn't want to go with him and they did not want to go live with him. On the night of October 23rd, Mike took all three kids to Tim's hockey game. Apparently, Deborah at that point was at her therapist's appointment. So it's really good that she is getting some, you know, mental health treatment at this point. When the hockey game finished at 8.30, Tim had played an amazing game and all three kids were buoyant and happy. At quarter of nine, Mike accompanied his children home to the house on Canterbury Court where Deborah was putting out some Kentucky fried chicken for dinner. It was awkward and Deborah simply ignored him. So Mike picked up his mail and left after five minutes. He went on to Celeste's house where he had dinner with Celeste and her two sons. They ended up watching some football and then at 10.35 p.m. he got a page to call the house at Canterbury Corp. When he called back, Deborah denied paging him and thus began a back and forth of Deborah paging him and wanting to know where he was and seeming drunk and then getting mad at Mike. All the while, Mike is getting unbelievably frustrated with Deborah because he can tell that she's wasted and home alone with the kids. Yeah. And she's not supposed to be drinking on her medication. Yep. Yeah. I mean, fuck, Klonopin, 
Yeah, and Klonopin, like Prozac, and then there's something else called Transine or Tranxine. Yeah. Which sounds like a tranquilizer. It sounds like a tranquilizer. So when Michael got home around 11.40 p.m., he called her once more after another page, and he told her he was angry. I mean, at this point, he kind of unloads on her. He said that there were parents at school who had noticed her drinking and poor parenting and that people were considering calling social services. Mike went so on So bad. It's really bad. And that's what he's saying. He's like, you need to get your shit together. You are like this close to our kids getting taken away from us. He also finally told her like that he knew that she was poisoning him and that when he could prove it, he was going to take the children away from her for good. So the two got into a shouting match at this point and someone hung up the phone. Deborah called back five minutes later and seemed surprised when Mike answered at his apartment. This is how this conversation went according to Ann Rule. Oh, she said, I didn't know you were home. I thought you were still out driving around. I really did not want to talk to you. I wanted to leave a message on the machine. And since you're home, I'm not going to say anything. She hung up. She was playing games again, Mike thought. He was too upset to try to sleep. So he went downstairs and began working on a TV console he had partially assembled earlier in the day. At about 12.30, the phone rang again, as Mike had half expected that it would. Resignedly, he picked up the phone and expected to be berated once more by Deborah. But it wasn't Deborah. It was Dr. Mary Foreman, who only yesterday had told him about Deborah's latest bizarre letter. Before Mike could speak, Mary shouted something, something that took him a moment or two to understand. Your house is on fire. There are fire trucks everywhere. Your wife is a fucking arsonist. What did you say, he asked? Numbly, Mike heard her repeat the same words again. He hung up the phone and ran toward the vehicle that was parked the closest his pickup truck. So a 911 operator had had a hang-up call that very night that only featured a couple of seconds of heavy breathing before it disconnected at 12.21 a.m. that morning. The call had come from the house on Canterbury Court. The dispatcher was a woman named Miriam Russell, and her gut instinct told her that something was seriously wrong. She immediately sent two cars with red lights and sirens to the address. Officers arrived on the scene in less than three minutes. Wow. I mean, we hear so many stories of people not responding quickly enough or not believing that the emergency warranted immediate attention. And it's like, oh, it drives us crazy. This is an example of incredible work on our emergency services team, you know? Yeah. So immediately the officers could tell that the mansion was on fire. They radioed for Miriam to send the fire department and ran to the front yard where they found a woman and a little girl standing barefoot. The little girl was 10-year-old Lissa, the middle child. And she was hysterically screaming, my brother and sister are in the house. They're trapped. Please don't let them die. Please save them. Deborah, however, was so calm and collected that the police officer actually asked Lissa where her mother was and if her mother was still in the house, even oh though Deborah was standing right next to Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's so telling. Yep. So Deborah actually, like, he's like, is mom in the house? And she, like, literally Deborah turned to him and she goes, I'm mom. And he was floored because he could not imagine that any mother whose children were trapped in a burning building would just be like calmly sitting there doing nothing. Are they really trapped inside though, the kids? I mean, it seems so at this point. And they even talk about like later when this case gets publicized that apparently, I don't know if you ever read about this, but there was a cat in Brooklyn 
And this house or this place where the cat hit and her kittens had been staying caught on fire. And this like cat kept going back into the fire, even though she got so badly burned by the end, she was blinded. And she kept going back into the fire and rescuing her kittens one by one and dragging them across the street. And by the end, she couldn't even see. And she was literally bobbing her face on each kitten's head, like counting them and smelling them. Yeah, I I vaguely remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like hero cat. And I think they all got adopted and it was really sweet. Yeah. But yeah, people like later when this came out, they were like, a fucking cat got burned over 70% of her cat mom, Bobby, to save her kittens. And this bitch didn't even try to save her kids. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like, okay, this is a little weird. So the officers on the scene tried to break into the home, but the flames met them at every entryway. They'd only been there for five minutes when the entire house was like up in fire. The fire department arrived in six minutes and immediately began putting out the fire and sending men in on a rescue mission. So the top level where the children slept was completely on fire. So their only hope was that the kids had somehow been able to get down to a lower level. So the only way that they can get in is there's one second story window that doesn't appear to be in fire. So they break through that window and they begin to travel downstairs. Now the house is completely on fire and it is just wall to wall black smoke everywhere. They have to split into two teams and they literally have to crawl around the house on their hands and knees because the smoke is so thick. They said that they were literally searching for humans by touch because they can't see anything. Couldn't see anything. Yeah. Yeah. So they're going around feeling everything. And they had this strategy of, I guess all firefighters do, that you go in a circle always to the right. So you don't end up getting lost in the smoke. So they keep doing this. They're going room by room. They're canvassing it until they get to a dead end because there's this wall of flame just all the way from the floor to the roof. And the house is beginning to fall apart around them. There's like burning beams coming down and just open flame and smoke everywhere. So at this point, the captain has to be like, if I don't get my team out of here, they're all going to die. Yeah. So they haven't found the children yet. They get out. They manage to search the garage and the basement. But the children and the dogs were not there. Uh... So by now, Mike had arrived at Canterbury Court and he was stunned to find the house totally ablaze. His first thoughts were not that the children were in danger. His first thoughts were what a pain in the ass it was going to be to have to do all of the insurance paperwork and find clothes for his kids and how Deborah would have to come live with him potentially. It didn't even occur to him that his children would be in the fire. I mean, the first time that she did this, she took the dog with her. You know, she did not endanger her family. So he's not thinking about this at all. And he even actually called Celeste and he's like, my whole house is on fucking fire. I think Deborah did it. I think she set the, the, the fire. She got the kids out. She got the dogs out. And she set the fire to push me back into her life again, you know? Of course. I mean, that that's what makes most sense since she got what she wanted last time. 
Exactly. And that's what he thought was going on. So as he's approaching the, you know, the firefighters and the police officers, there's like a ton of people outside. There's all of his neighbors are standing around outside as well. And he asked the police officer where his kids are. And the officer replied that his wife and one of his daughters were safe inside of a squad car, but that the other two children were still in the home. Mike let out a primal scream and slowly turned to where Deborah sat in the car and yelled, what have you done? While Mike tried to hold out hope for the survival of his babies, Lissa was taken to Mike's parents' home and Deborah was taken to the police station to be questioned. The fire raged against the firefighters who methodically brought it to heel. There was no sign of Tim or Kelly. At the police station, Deborah appeared not at all distraught and was even described as affable by the police. Right away, they noticed that her timeline was full of discrepancies and that she was referring to her children in the past tense. Okay, that is insane. And at this point, you know, when she went to the police station, they were still putting the house out. They were still trying to rescue the children. So there was no reason for her to use the past tense. Most chilling was the following that she said about their son, Tim. This is from Bitter Harvest. Deborah explained that she had to unlock the deadbolt on her bedroom door from the inside in order to step out onto the deck along the back of the house. I left that way. As I went around the corner to inform the neighbors to call 911, that's when I heard Tim on the intercom by the pool deck. He used to be my 13-year-old. Oh, my God. Deborah spoke in a steady stream of consciousness style, and she was apparently unaware that she had just referred to Tim in the past tense. <laughs> she hurriedly explained that Tim had lost so many keys that he was quite used to going in and out of his window by means of the second floor roof. He must have done that 30 times, she said. Deborah had heard his voice on the intercom, but hadn't seen him. She didn't explain why she had not looked up toward his voice but only listened to the intercom box attached to the wall of their house by the back deck. He said, Mom, what shall I do? I said, Tim, wait where you are, and I'm going to call 911 to come and save you. And he said, well, should I get one of the girls and try to come out? And I said, no, which I'm sure was the kiss of death. What is wrong with you? Why would you tell your child that in a burning building to just stay put? Oh, my God. Deborah did not say... Why she had not simply called 911 from the phone in her own bedroom because at this point she said she ran over to the neighbor's house. But she could have called from her own house. Was she like killing time? I think so. After Dr. Foreman had left her at his side door to call for help, Deborah remembered she turned around and saw my 10-year-old on the garage roof. Liz is afraid of heights, she remarked. She's afraid of pretty much everything. I said, jump. And she said, no, I can't do it. And I said, you will. Jump to me now. And she jumped. And I missed her totally. I'm sure she'll never trust anybody. And she fell down right at my feet, but she was not hurt. But I'm sure that's the only reason we have Lissa alive. The cops had to just be like, open-mouthed, what? Like, this is cold as ice. Talking about letting your children perish in a fire. Deborah also explained that the dogs had gotten into some espresso beans earlier in the night, so she had sent them to bed with the kids. So the dogs were also still in the house. Dogs eat espresso beans, so you put them in the room with the children. That's what she said. She goes, I don't want these dogs keeping me up all night because they ate espresso beans, so I'm going to make them sleep with the kids. That's how she explained it to 
the authorities. So meanwhile, back at Canterbury Court, the fire had been put out long enough that the investigators were able to enter. There, they discovered Tim's charred corpse in the living room. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm sorry, guys. There is I should have done a trigger warning for child death. This is really upsetting. Um, and I'm going to talk about it briefly just for a little bit. So if you are disturbed by this, you can fast forward a minute. So it looked like the fire had been set beneath Tim's bedroom and had burned through his floor. Okay. So that his bed and himself had fallen to the next. Got it. Okay. Wow. And that's where he was found. In Kelly's room, they found her dead of carbon monoxide poisoning in her bed. There were no signs that she had even woken up. Whoa. We talked about this with the Happy Land fires, you know. Yeah. It's like there were some people that didn't even realize what was happening, you know. Yeah. And that was the case for this sweet little six-year-old girl. She was six. Six years old. And, and you know, obviously this is beyond contemplation terrible. Uh, but the one respite is that she didn't even know that yeah. it was happening. Yeah. She yep, yep. passed in her sleep before she could even be scared, you know. Yeah. And her faithful dog, Boomer, was under her bed with her also died no at 5 30 in the morning the police broke the news to deborah that her children were dead and she finally showed some emotion but it was very weird because she was like oh no like she kind of like put on this act and then she was very concerned about whether or not mike had heard and she said several times that she wanted to be the one to deliver the devastating news to him okay this bitch is fucked up yeah, I think that it's later theorized that she wanted to see him in pain. She wanted to be the of one course, to deliver yeah. that painful blow to him. The police also delivered the horrific news to Mike, of course, who completely broke down. I mean, they had to leave him alone in a room for minutes upon minutes to collect himself because he was just beside himself. After he somewhat recovered, he told the police about Deb's psychiatric hold four weeks before, the problems in the marriage that led to the separation, his illness and suspicion of being poisoned by her, as well as the phone calls leading up to the terrible fire. In the morning, the fire had yet to be ruled in arson, so there was nothing to hold Deborah on, so they had to let her go. What? Yeah. So she's let free. She clearly has Holy nowhere to go. shit. Yeah. So also at this point, Mike believes that she set the house on fire and she's going to him like, hey, my house is destroyed. I have nowhere to go. Can I come with you? And he's like, uh, fuck no. Absolutely no, fucking not. Are you coming to stay with me? So he actually like left Lissa with his parents, her grandparents, obviously. And he ended up giving Deborah $300 and his truck because he had another car. And he was like, here, you can take this, go get a hotel, but I don't want you anywhere around me, you know? Or our single surviving daughter. Yes, absolutely. So that night at the hotel, she got so wasted that she ended up calling her divorce attorney and her divorce attorney rushed over and there was apparently like, she was like completely passed out and there was blood on her pillow. So she was like, maybe she's vomiting blood. Maybe her, you know, organs are failing or something from the insane drinking. So the divorce attorney calls an ambulance to come to the hotel and take her to the hospital. 
And as they were moving her from the bed, one of the paramedics heard Deborah say, I killed my babies, my poor babies. However, she only said that once and then all the way to the hospital, she didn't say it again. She just kept moaning, my babies, my babies, my poor babies the whole way. So they call Fire Marshal Jeff Hudson in to investigate. And at the time, Jeff was the president of the Kansas chapter of the International Association of Arson Investigators and considered one of the very best in his profession. Okay. Jeff Hudson explained how you could tell accidental fire versus arson. One, with arson, there are multiple points of fire origin versus with an accident, there is only one and then a clear pattern of how that one fire spread. In the case of the house on Canterbury Court, there were multiple points of origin and evidence of accelerant all over the house. It was immediately clear that this was no accident. Using sniffer dogs and the charred evidence, Jeff was able to trace the poor pattern. The arsonist had started at the north end of the main floor, soaking the dining room and kitchen floors with accelerant and then going up and down the carpeted stairway that led to the children's wing. Oh. My God. Yeah. So the children had their own wing and there was no other staircase. So this was the only exit. And somebody had clearly poured accelerant purposely on this stairway. So there was absolutely no way for the children to get out other than jumping off the roof like Lissa had done. So this was not just arson. This was straight up murder. Exactly. After the staircase was saturated, the arsonist killer had spread accelerant all throughout the living and music rooms and down a hallway that led to the master bedroom. There was evidence that the arsonist had lit one of the fires from just outside that master bedroom, which, of course, Deborah had claimed that she was in the bedroom, so she could have done all of that and then left out the, you know, the bedroom deck. Just like she said, she got Oh, my God. All in all, the arsonist used somewhere between 3 to 10 gallons of accelerant, which Jeff Hudson could not say exactly what the accelerant was. He I figured because you said accelerant like eight times. So yes, he, he was- said it was definitely not gasoline, but he said it might have even been gin or vodka, which we knew she had a lot of that laying around. I'm surprised she was willing to waste it. Yeah. So the fire marshal conveyed his report to the police, and now they know that they have an arson that was seemed set purposely to kill the children. Yeah. A mysterious suicide, that of John Walker, and a man who has been poisoned. So they are like, what the fuck is going on in in this family, you know? Yeah. And who is at the center of it all? Deborah, of course, but Mike as well. The police decide to focus the investigation on the warring couple. Mike naturally believed that the culprit was Deborah, and Deborah tried to say that Celeste was the arsonist. She said to the police, Who had everything to gain? Celeste. Celeste wanted my husband, and the only thing in the way of their being together were her husband, me, and my children. With me and my children gone, Michael wouldn't even have to pay child support. Well, John is dead, and Celeste has $3 million worth of insurance, and I almost died, and so did Lissa, so you figure it out. Whoa. Yeah. Fire Marshal Jeff Hudson had suggested to the police that the arsonist would likely have singed hair. So the investigators requested that Mike and Deborah come in so they could clip some of their hair for testing. Mike did this, no problem, but, Kel surprise, 
Not only does Deborah not comply, she immediately goes out and gets her hair cut at two separate beauty salons. Stop. Uh-huh. So later when they question her about it, like why she got her hair cut twice in a matter of a couple days, she said she didn't like the first haircut and she wanted to look good for the children's funeral. Oh, my God. Really? That's what you're thinking about? Yeah. That you're thinking about your hair at that juncture in time. So the police get a warrant and under electron microscope, a forensic chemist is able to prove that Deborah's hair was definitely singed. Forensic files shit right there. Uh-huh. I bet there's a forensic files on this case. There has to be. It has to be. Yeah. So that doesn't fit Deborah's story at all because she said that she like opened her door, realized there was fire, and then she left. Like she did not say anything about being close enough to the fire to get burned at all. And her neighbors, doctors, John and Mary Foreman, had noticed that it was very weird that her hair was wet. So it seemed likely she set the fire. She didn't realize like how fast the accelerant was going to go up. She singed her hair and then went and put her head in the sink in the master bedroom suite before leaving. Oh, my God. And that also didn't make sense because she said she was like awoken to the fire alarm. So why would her hair be wet? Like she wasn't showering or anything. Yeah. Furthermore, the investigators tracked down the woman who sold the castor beans, and she was able to pick Deborah out of a photo lineup. Yikes. Not looking good for old Debbiekins at this point. But sadly, it's not really looking good for Mike either. The long-term effects of the poison were absolutely ravaging his body. In November, an echocardiogram showed that Mike had a severely leaking mitral valve caused by a bacterial infection of the heart. He had to be hospitalized with endocarditis and once again had to get a catheter inserted in a vein so he could get intravenous antibiotics around the clock in order to survive. The investigators sent samples of Mike's blood and the packet of castor beans to the FBI's lab at Quantico for testing. On November 22nd, while Mike was still in the hospital fighting for his life, the disgraced Dr. Deborah Green was arrested for aggravated arson, murder, and two counts of attempted murder for Lissa and Mike. Bail was set at an extraordinary $3 million, which naturally Deb could not pay, so she was forced to stay in jail until her preliminary hearing. Good. While Deborah was awaiting her hearing, the autopsy report on John Walker came back. It was indeed a suicide with the anesthesiologist injecting himself with two medications that would essentially stop his heart. It was tricky enough that the coroner reported only an anesthesiologist would A, have access to the drugs necessary, and B, have the knowledge to kill themselves that particular way. Okay. Deborah would never be officially implicated in John's suicide, but many believe that she had been a poisonous voice in his ear pushing him to a deadly brink. You think? I think so. I, she denies it. She said that she did talk to him a lot leading up to his suicide. And there was some phone records that showed they had been in communication. Ah. But she denied telling him about the affair. But she's a fucking liar. So I don't trust anything she said. Yeah. I don't think she... Obviously, she did not put the IV in his arm and the medications in that IV. But I do think it was due to some manipulation and influence that he was depressed, you know? Yeah. In December of 1995, Mike was in critical condition. The bacteria that had attacked his heart had traveled to the front of his brain and built up a fatal abscess. Immediate brain surgery was necessary to open his skull and drain the abscess. A cerebral angiogram 
also revealed that Mike had an aneurysm in a main blood vessel in his brain caused by the bacteria. He had to have four more brain angiograms over the next four months to prepare for a surgery to fix this aneurysm before it blew and killed him. And these angiograms were so dangerous in and of themselves that each time he had this test done, he had to spend the night in the hospital. Yikes. The doctors did not know if Mike would make it to his second brain surgery alive. And even if he did, his odds of surviving the surgery were bad. And he could die at any point because of this aneurysm. The DA's office videotaped Mike's statements against his estranged wife so that they could be played in court after his death. Yikes. That is not a good sign. No. Thankfully, Mike survived his brain surgeries and he prepared to testify in Deborah's preliminary hearing in January. And there's a picture of him. I think I'm going to try to include it where you can literally still see his skull scar where they stapled his head back together. Yeah, I'd imagine. So the preliminary hearing in January of 1996 is a hearing in which the DA has to prove that there's enough evidence against Deborah to move to trial. And of course, Deborah's attorneys want the case thrown out before trial and the charges dropped. The <laughs> DA, yeah, of course, that's what they want. <laughs> this is what their objectives are at this point. So the DA claimed that in a jealous rage, Deborah had poisoned her cheating husband. And when that failed to kill him, she murdered their children for revenge. They intended to show that the forensic evidence was on their side and produced many witnesses to Deborah's erratic behavior and chilling statements leading up to the fire. Their bombshell testimony was from the FBI lab. Mike's blood had tested positive for ricin antibodies, and they matched the ricin found inside the castor bean sent to the lab. It's not looking good, Debs. Not looking good, Debs. Ugh, but you are going to get so pissed right now. Get ready. For the Andy Cassette radiometer to go off. Deborah's attorneys offered an argument that an entirely different person was not only the arsonist, but also the poisoner. In a truly despicable twist, Deborah said that it was her dead son, Tim, who had committed these unspeakable acts. You've got to be fucking kidding me. Nope. She said that Mike was such a bad dad that. Their son hated him so much that she had gone to the store to buy the seeds for her son, who was the one who prepared more food in the household because she was a bad cook, and that this was all Tim's idea and all of Tim's plan. Oh my God, that is so disgusting. I can't believe like the defense attorneys went along with it. Yeah, I mean, I it might have been their idea, to be honest. I don't know whose idea it was, but she totally went along with it. And you can imagine how angry Mike was that not only did she murder his children, she was now putting all of the blame on their dead 13-year-old. That is mind-numbing. Though the defense never said what his motivation would have been for killing his mother, sisters, and self, the defense painted Tim as a deeply disturbed young man with an obsession with fire. It's so fucked up because he stood by his mom the whole time. The whole time to the very end, it sounds like. I, I think there was some truth in what she said about the intercom. And he definitely would listen to his mom and stayed in his bedroom instead of jumping out on that roof like Lissa did. 
It was his loyalty and his love of his mother that ended his life. That is crazy. And now she is completely betraying his memory. They had a friend of Tim's testify to making Molotov cocktails with him. A neighbor testified that he caught Tim and a friend setting a fire on their lawn. And a childhood nanny who claimed Tim had set trash can fires under her care. Where do you think he learned that from? Yeah. I also have to say, I think that all kids go through some what of a experimental fire phase. I know I certainly, especially boys. I set a fire in my driveway just because I wanted to see what it was like when I was like 10. You know, of course my parents were horrified and I didn't again, but I remember like being like, okay, I'm on the pavement. It can be contained. It's not going to spread. I just was so curious, you know, I never have, but I do like fire. I enjoy like watching fire and like, yeah bonfires. I could look it up bonfire for like five hours. But yeah, all kids are intrigued by it. Exactly. Exactly. I'm not going to like normalize it to the point where I say everyone goes through a firebug face like I did. (laughs) I just admitted that. But I do think there's always some interest and I think it's not at all uncommon for young men to be interested in it. No, at all. Yeah. So Fire Marshal Jeff Hudson got up on the stand and he was like, that is total BS. There's no way that this cockamamie attempt to set up a murdered child for the crime is even remotely true. He explained his findings and how the fire had spread and made it clear that where Tim's body had fallen from made it absolutely 100% impossible for the boy to have set the fire. Love. On the stand, Jeff was forced to admit that while he knew it could not have been Tim, he could not conclusively say exactly who did set the house on fire. However, in his heart, body, and soul, he truly did know. And this is what he later said to Ann Rule. I didn't look at Mrs. Green while I was testifying, he would recall months later. But when I was done and leaving the courtroom, I looked right at her. I wanted her to know that I knew exactly what had happened. And no matter what she said to anybody else, she and I knew exactly what had happened. Yeah, that's awesome. Boss ass move. Yeah. Stare that bitch down. When the hearing was over, it was now up to Judge Ruddick to decide if Deborah's charges would be dropped or if she'd be headed to trial. If he ruled that she'd be going to trial, the prosecution wanted to keep all the charges in to establish Deborah's pattern. Deborah's attorneys argued that they wanted to sever the poisoning from the arson. Well, Judge Ruddick ruled that not only would Deborah go to trial, that he would not sever the charges. So this is zero for two for you, Debbie Cakes. Good. To make matters worse, the DA decided to go for the death penalty in the upcoming trial. The DA's logic was that if he ever wanted to go for any death penalty case ever again, he'd have to go for this one. He later said to Ann Rule, Finally, for me, the decision came down to that if you're not going to do it on this case, I don't think you could really do it on any case. You work really hard to be fair and try to treat everyone equal. And I just thought, if we don't do this, what are we going to do in five years from now when some black guy or some Hispanic woman walks into a grocery and kills three or four people in an armed robbery? What are you going to say that's different about them from Deborah Green? In fact, you could almost argue that someone like Deborah, who's had all of the advantages, makes it even more inexcusable. If Deborah's jury should find her guilty of deliberately setting fire to a house in which her children were sleeping, of deliberately poisoning her own husband, no one could argue that they were not heinous crimes. It should not matter that she was a physician, a wealthy woman who lived in a posh suburb. Yeah, wealthy white woman. 
Uh-huh. Plus, Morrison said, his face turning sadly reflective, I went to those posts and I remember when you see that little girl who was just about the cutest little girl in the world laying there on that autopsy table because mom wanted to get back at dad. Well, that adds a little fuel to the fire too on a personal level. No, I guess it was very, very, very hard for the like autopsy technicians and medical examiner and all of the police officers because it was just this beautiful little girl who looked like she was sleeping and she was dead forever because of her mother's rage. On April 12th, Mike had to fly to San Francisco to see a specialized neurosurgeon for yet another brain surgery. Oh my God. I know, this poor guy. When he awoke from the life-saving hours-long procedure, he had a message from the DA. Deborah had been scared by the death penalty and had confessed to the arson that killed his children and wanted to take a plea deal. No, fuck you, bitch. No plea for you. There's no plea for killing your children. Also, her confession was super weak sauce. She claimed that she blacked out and that she might have set the fire. She basically- So that's not even a real confession. It's not that's a real like a confession. She basically said, I think it's completely possible that I did this. I think the evidence points to me, but I was so fucked up that night. I don't really remember. No. And she stayed alleging that Tim was still the poisoner, even when she, quote unquote, confessed. Yeah. So regardless of all this BS, Mike was actually inclined to let her plea out because Lissa was still going through this and she was traumatized by everything. And he was like, if this goes to a full trial and all the media attention on her, she's never going to have a normal life again. Yeah, no, I know. I always get carried away and like forget that the plea deal actually just means like no trial, but she should still go to jail for life. Yeah. So she ends up getting sentenced to a hard 40 meaning that she will serve 40 years in prison before there will even be the possibility of parole. Seeing as she was like in her mid-40s at this point, she will be a very elderly woman before she is even able to potentially make parole. I think it's most likely that she will die in prison. Uh, yeah, I, there can't be any other way. I do think that this one should have got an LWAP. Yeah. Life without possibility of parole. I agree. After the sentencing, Celeste and Mike broke up. Celeste was super bitter about it, but I do really think that Mike was doing the right thing. Obviously, his daughter needed him. And yeah, they both need a fresh start anyway. Yes, exactly. Mike would go on to marry an attorney later on, and he did survive all of his myriad health problems. Thank God. Mm -hmm. He's still practicing as a cardiologist in Kansas City, Missouri, and he has a pretty uh, decent health grade score of 4.6. Oh, wow. Go, Mike. So Lissa has chosen to stay out of the limelight, so we're going to respect that by not sharing her real name. Lissa was a pseudonym. According to an article by Kriti Mahotra in the Cinemaholic website, Lissa is now happily married with a child and still somehow remarkably close to both parents. It is said that she often visits her mother in prison in Topeka, Kansas. Anne Rule also visited Deborah Green in prison while she was writing Bitter Harvest and found the woman to be a conniving liar. She claimed once more that Tim poisoned his father and tried to convince Anne that she had been tricked into accepting the plea deal while she was on meds and that Celeste and Mike had actually hired a professional arsonist to kill her and the children. 
Oh my god. That was her new story. Get your story straight, bitch. Deborah has twice petitioned for a new trial. In 2000, she filed her first request based on the whole I was too medicated to make a plea deal thing. But she withdrew her request when the DA told her that they would still be going after the death penalty if she was convicted. <laughs> so she's like, yeah, you know what? Never mind. Never mind. Never, never mind. mind. Change never mind. mind. I, was t- I was too fucked up a minute ago. <laughs> I was on too many pills a second ago. Never mind. What was I thinking? Exactly. Fuck yep. Off. And then after the death penalty was abolished in Kansas, she appealed once more in 2005 but the judge denied that appeal. And thusly, she remains in prison where, like I said, I think she shall be for the rest of her living days. Thank you guys so much for listening. Wow, um, Jesse, What a story. Thank you, Heather, for sending this one to me with the book attached. Absolutely. I really, really appreciate it. This was a hard one, guys. I mean, we try not to do death of children very often in this case, but... I think that this was a prime love murder story because it's about how bad a marriage can be that can devastate entire families and stretch out to devastate a community. I mean, it's just a really sad story. And there were so many times that I think Mike had this gut instinct that the relationship was wrong and he kept overruling it. Well, yeah, because he was trying to do the best thing for his family. But I think ultimately... If your relationship's bad, it's never going to set a good example for your kids. So just move on. Sayonara. You already lit the house on fire once. Bye. Yeah, it's hard to do. I mean, divorce is a really, really, really hard thing to do. But if the alternative is something as devastating as this, it's the right thing to do. Or the alternative is like living the rest of your life fighting and miserable and unhappy and passionless, you know? Yeah. 100%. So, Andy, yeah, I think this one was just a little bit rough so maybe no funnies this week oh it was a little raw a little raw so i think we're just gonna end on trust your gut when it comes to love oh no one ends up murdered and from the bottom of our hearts thank you guys so much for listening we love and appreciate each and every one of you bye bye